Okay, check, check. Oh, oh, maybe I better hit the potty before I start this podcast on the bladder. Is that just me? Well, bladder problems are not just me, and today we're going to talk about the seven domains of women's bladders. Part of this is in response to a very funny Who Cares About Men's Health podcast from the scope on men's problem with their stream when they pee. Men worry about their stream flow, and women are more likely to worry about stopping their bladder flowing. We're going to get to it, but if talking about your bladder makes you, you know, you can pause now, hit the potty, and then rejoin us. Many women have problems with their bladders, and the most common problem is incontinence, leaking when you don't want to. Of course, we all started with this problem when we were babies, and we'll probably have this problem more in or sometime in our life. So let's get to it. Helping us in the virtual scope studio is an expert on women's bladders, Dr. Carolyn Swenson. She's an associate professor in the OBGYN department at the U, University of Utah, and she is chief of the division of urogynecology, which is a group of OBGYNs and researchers with specialty training in women's bladders and their pelvic floor. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Swenson. Thank you for having me. Okay. Now I have a question. What were the factors that directed you to this field of work? I mean, we think of OBGYN as being babies and fibroid tumors in the uterus, and but you took a different path. Well, what attracted me most to the field of urogynecology was the ability to make a huge difference in improving a women's quality of life. So urinary incontinence and prolapse are symptoms and conditions that have been around for as long as women have been having babies, so for thousands of years. But despite that, our field is actually a relatively new field. So when I was in my residency training, our field was actually just getting our accreditation and gaining more exposure as an actual subspecialty of OBGYN. And that was exciting. I loved the ability to to help women with these conditions, which sometimes are really difficult to talk about uh, and patients are uncomfortable with. And just getting to to see the improvement uh, in women's quality of life is the best part of my job. So it was just kind of a natural natural fit for me. So I belong to a clan of leakers, and so I'm grateful for people like you who can help my whole clan. Uh, now, full disclosure, and we don't have to keep this on the tape. Have you ever, you know, lost it? Absolutely. <laughs> so I have three children of my own, and uh, after every every delivery, I struggled with urinary incontinence, um, and. You know, it, it's common. It is, it is something that most women at some point in their life will experience. And, um, so yes, I have definitely, I have definitely been, uh, somebody who's had, had struggles with leakage of urine. Okay. Well, that normalizes it for all of us who are listening. You belong now to my clan. I'm in your the clan. Clan of the leaking ladies. Okay. <laughs> well, you've published some research on older women and bladder problems, specifically incontinence. Can you talk a little bit about that? Your survey? Sure. So when I was at the University of Michigan, they are part of a really fantastic 
group called the National that that runs the National Poll on Healthy Aging, which is actually sponsored by the AARP. They do some really interesting work on conditions that affect uh, particularly older the older population and. Um, I approached kind of the lead investigator um, for the National Poll on Healthy Aging uh, about doing something specific to women, which they had never done before. So we were able to do a survey, uh, a national survey on women ages 50 to 80 about urinary incontinence. And so what we found was really interesting. Um, You know, almost half of women have experienced urinary leakage in that age group. And of those women, a third of them have leakage on a daily basis, which is pretty significant. You know, the other interesting things we found out in the survey was that a large proportion of women actually haven't talked to their doctors about leakage of urine, even those who have daily leakage. You know, their their leakage of urine also really impacted their quality of life. So Many women reported uh, limiting their activities, not going out shopping or, or going to the movies or doing things with friends that were outside of the house because of concerns of leakage of urine. So, you know, the take home point from that was that it's common in older women. It can be quite severe and women limit their activity because of it. And not everyone is talking to their doctors about it. And I think a lot of the reason behind that is because they kind of assume that leakage is a normal part of aging and and there's nothing that can be done. And so they just kind of have to to live with it and and suffer with these symptoms. And fortunately, that's not true. We have lots of good treatments for leakage of urine. Well, we've talked before on uh, the seven domains about what's normal. And I would say if you define normal as what's what um, something like uh, many people have more than 5%, um, then you'd say that this is normal, but not desirable. It's common, but not desirable to be in the leaking ladies club. So now that we decided it's a really big club and the Association of Retired People helped you put this really amazing survey out. But let's, let's go to the physical domain and, you know, we get control of our bladder between two or three years on average, I think there's some data that says that girls hold it better than boys, babies. That's just on average. But we do pretty well until, I don't know, we get to with a bunch of girls. I was thinking of teenage girls saying, I laugh so hard, I peed my pants. What's that about? There was um, a little sign that I saw in in... I don't know, one of these home home goods type stores that said, um, I laugh so hard, tears ran down my leg. And <laughs> I, I feel that. like that, that should be kind of, you know, a plaque in our, in our, in our <laughs> office, our clinic somewhere. Cause that's, that is true. That's what happens. So, um, yeah, so that is called stress incontinence. And the reason leakage, uh, happens in those situations. So laughing, coughing, sneezing has to do with an increase uh, in intra-abdominal pressure. So anytime you do those things, the pressure inside your abdomen and pelvis increases. And to be able to hold urine in, your urethra, that little tube you pee out of that's attached to your bladder, has to be strong enough to resist that increase that sudden increase oftentimes in intra-abdominal pressure. And if for whatever reason you're not prepared or your, re- your urethra is not strong enough, then you have leakage of urine. 
So, um, so yes, that's, that's kind of <laughs> what we call stress incontinence. Well, you can certainly have it if you've got a really bad cough. You know, you, you got COVID and you coughed for a month and you're still young and your bladder's in the right place. And, and I've been watching the NCAA finals in gymnastics and those ladies don't have a micrometer to stick a little pad in their outfits and they land really hard and they would show. So, what are they doing? They are landing on their pelvic floor over and over and over for years. Is that a risk factor for for a little bit of problems? So gymnasts and Olympic weightlifters, um, paratroopers, they all experience leakage of urine. So um, stress incontinence in female athletes is is actually quite common because of exactly what we're talking about, that sudden increase in intra-abdominal pressure is just too much for the urethra, even a normal urethra sometimes, to handle. You know, so the data on whether activities like gymnastics over time increases your, you know, long-term risk of urinary incontinence, we actually don't have good data to say that is the case. There, There is data, however, in, in some situations that chronic straining or chronic what we call repetitive loading. Those are those activities where you just really put a lot of force on your pelvic floor over and over and over and over. In some studies that is associated with uh, leakage of urine and pelvic organ prolapse. Well, so the other time that we have difficulties before we get very old and when we get old is when we have a urinary tract infection. So what's that about? Um, that kind of ties in nicely to the other type of urinary um, leakage, which we haven't talked about specifically yet, which is overactive bladder and urgency incontinence. And this type of leakage happens when you have some sort of irritant in the bladder or an overly sensitive bladder muscle that um, kind of squeezes when it maybe shouldn't. And um, then you leak urine associated with that. So common situations are, you know, when you uh, have, have a couple cups of coffee um, and you start to get that really strong urge to go and then can't make it to the bathroom. Or when you drive home from the grocery store and put your key in the door and you have a sudden strong urge to go and can't make it to the bathroom. So in those situations, your bladder muscle is squeezing. That's when you get that urgency sense. Uh, that's that bladder muscle squeezing and you just are not able to hold it in because that bladder squeeze is so strong. Um, with a bladder infection, it's it's very similar. So you have bacteria in the bladder, in, in your urine that your bladder wants to get rid of. And so it gets irritated and starts squeezing uh, and contracting. Uh, and that's associated with those leakage episodes. Right. And well, and then we have get pregnant and our baby's head sits on our bladder. But the problem or the process, it's not a problem, but a vaginal birth rearranges or weakens, uh, stretches the pelvic floor. And women may often have a problem right after birth, but women who have had their bladder rearranged, pelvic floor rearranged, they often get better. But then when they get into their 40s and 50s, they get a little worse. So is that an aging bladder floor or is it an aging brain or is it both? It's a great question, and it's probably a combination of both. So let's talk about the aging aspect first. We have really good, clear data 
showing that aging is associated with weakening of our skeletal muscles in, in our whole body. So after age 50, we lose about 10% of our skeletal muscle mass per decade. The urethra that to be pee out of, um, there is a muscle that goes around the urethra that is skeletal muscle. And so that is also affected by aging. And we know from studies that have been done looking at the strength of that urethra, that as you age, you also lose strength in that urethra. And the ability to hold in urine is really reliant on that urethra strength. So you want a really strong urethra so that you can resist bladder squeezes and resist increases in intra-abdominal pressure and hold urine in. So aging um, alone increases your risk of a kind of a weak urethra. Uh, and leakage of urine. Then add on top of that, the the pelvic floor changes that come with vaginal delivery, and those kind of compound and, and exacerbate the, the aging effects. So gravity is relentless. Gravity <laughs> as well. Yes. Yeah. So and that ties into the prolapse, you know, prolapse and, and urinary incontinence are related and often occur at the same time and, you know, for a lot of the same reasons. Well, I just did 20 over the last minute. I did 20 while I was listening to you talk. I can kegel while I talk. I'm doing it right now. You can sense a little strain in my voice maybe, but I can really make my pelvic floor contract. So is that helpful? I'm doing it now. I love that you are doing Kegels. You keep those up. Um, <laughs> yes. So, okay. The, the key is to be able to do the Kegels correctly. And so if you're not sure whether you're doing a Kegel correctly, then I would encourage um, our listeners to go see their OBGYN um, or a primary care doctor to make sure, or if you have a, a pelvic floor physical therapist already, that's even better, um, just to make sure that that you are squeezing those muscles correctly. About 20% of women actually are not able to perform a Kegel. So, um, and that is, you know, just squeezing those pelvic floor muscles together and you really squeeze them as a group. It's hard to just isolate one and that's okay. You want to use them all. Kegels can be really effective at managing bothersome bladder symptoms. So in, in for both the types of leakage we talked about. So if you are somebody who is bothered by um, kind of that really strong urgency or leakage when you get home and put the key in the door, being able to squeeze, do, doing four to five Kegels kind of right in a row, really squeezing those pelvic floor muscles um, can actually help relax the bladder muscle and so can stop your that sense of urgency. And for stress incontinence, if you are about to sneeze or cough or laugh really hard, performing a Kegel kind of before those things is a strategic way to help prevent leakage. Well, you know, this is this topic is great for the seven domains because it is really a foundation of what we consider a normal active life. And when it goes wrong, it affects all the parts of our life. And I think about the emotional domain. And for me, I think um, I think of shame. I, I've been, you know, married. I've been together with my husband for 50 years and I don't really have a big discussion with him. He's a modest Men, and I don't really want to talk about it, but what are the common emotional responses in older women? You did the survey. Maybe people talked about that. Absolutely. Shame is a big one. 
and isolation, depression, kind of hopelessness, those, those all go along with having urinary incontinence, especially if you feel like you have to limit your activities or can't go to social outings due to fear of leakage or embarrassment. Um, and that's, a, that's another big one that the, the National Poll on Healthy Aging showed is, is uh, fear and, and embarrassment of leakage. Well, you know, it'd be, I was thinking about the podcast the men did on their streams and trying to normalize. Guys just make a big joke out of it. And I think when women get together, they can kind of, the leaking ladies uh, lunch, they can kind of joke about it. But in general, I want to normalize the conversation. So we say this is, you're not being degraded to the to a little baby who can't do it, right? Or a toddler who's struggling. You're a grown woman and this is common and there are things that can be done about it. And hopefully as we move into the social domain, um, find ways that can help women get out, do stuff, not just go to a mall where they know where the potty is, be able to go other places. I think that the social limitations. Absolutely. And I think what you said about increasing a, a awareness that there are treatments for leakage of urine and that women don't just have to to suffer with this um, even though it is common uh, there are there are treatments so I think that's a really important point that you made well we're gonna get when we get to the intellectual domain um, which is coming up in a minute but we're going to talk about treatments um, but let's just, I mean, a lot of women don't seek help and they just wear pads. And in the financial domain, pads aren't necessarily cheap and they're not very environmentally friendly. You are correct. So I did a little research on the value of the incontinence care market. Oh, yeah. And do you want to take a guess? So what do you think is the global, the value of the global incontinence care market? Oh, gosh, I wouldn't know globally. Okay. So, well, by 2026, the estimated value is over $24 billion. Oh, gosh. And um, the vast majority of that market share is absorbent products like pads um, and incontinence underwear. That's a, that's a new thing that's uh, really gained a lot of popularity. Does that work? So, Do they work? You know, I've had a couple of patients use them. I don't have a lot of people. I mean, they're kind of expensive, yeah, uh, I checked them. They're out. they're expensive. I think they work for small leaks, but yeah, teeny leakies. Yeah, I, I wouldn't trust them to go on a hike. But again, I think like the incontinent. My problem with this, obviously, we have to have something to help women manage uh, leakage so that they can go out and live their lives and and not have concerns about you know having embarrassing incontinence episodes while they're out in public. But I also think kind of the message that is driven with all of these commercials and marketing towards incontinence products is that this is the, this is the answer, right? Like this pad is the answer to your leakage of urine. And that is again pushing the narrative that women just have to live with this. Like you're going to leak. There's nothing you can do about it. You might as well just buy this pad that will help protect your clothes. Instead of saying you have leakage, go see a urogynecologist and and get some treatment for this, so you don't have to use pads. Okay, okay, then we're going to get right down to it. And in the intellectual domain, we're gonna we're gonna talk about learning about what kinds of things can be done. And I'm going to stick environmental domain in there. So we have um, we decided we have a problem and we've had it. Let's we talked a little bit about 
the causes and um, that women don't want to talk to their clinicians about it. But what are the solutions? What are some of the solutions? Let's talk about the solutions of the irritable bladder, the bladder that just wants to go all the time. Can our mind control that? You talked about doing some kegels when it happens, doing some squeezes. Can our mind help control this as too? Absolutely. So um, we have a lot of great treatments for both types of leakage that we've talked about. But if we're talking about kind of the overactive bladder symptoms, uh, urgency and frequency, the mind has a huge role to play in the treatment of of this uh, urinary urgency. There's actually some interesting research looking at brain imaging in patients who have overactive bladder and bothersome urinary urgency. And it it appears as though uh, women with those symptoms kind of process bladder filling in a different way and that it is associated with negative emotions. And this could be because in the past they've had leakage episodes and there's a, a strong uh, fear of leaking. And so that bladder filling, which is normal, uh, you know, our bladder's filling all the time, is associated with negative emotions. And therefore, you know, that's interpreted as as discomfort or, um, you know, we want to get rid of that negative feeling. So we try and go to the bathroom and, and empty our bladders. So um, the the bladder responds really well to mental signals. So signals from our brain. And the bladder is a very habit-forming organ as well. So there are lots of things we can do mentally to help retrain our bladder to be uh, less irritable and more cooperative and um, kind of work with us a little bit better. So one strategy is if you are, again, going back to the scenario where you're, you get home from the grocery store, you put your key in the door and have a really strong urge to go. Um, and let's say you emptied your bladder like 45 minutes ago. So you know your bladder's not really full, but it's giving you the signal that it needs to empty. One strategy is to kind of think about something else. So um, do something that requires some thought. So I, I often tell patients, give them the, um, you know, an example of counting backwards from 100 by sevens. That at least for me, that would take some mental energy to to figure out how to do that. And just distracting your brain a little bit so it's not so focused on your bladder can be a really useful trick. There's another really interesting study, actually, um, Ingrid Nygaard, who is one of my colleagues and a senior urogynecologist at the University of Utah, did a study looking at uh, mindfulness-based techniques and you know, that was highly effective at reducing urgency incontinence episodes. So practicing daily mindfulness, uh, stress reduction um, techniques actually can show some benefit too. Well, we've talked a little bit about environment in the seven domains, environmental factors. I've managed to convince my husband that he has to do the dishes because running water, my hands in running water isn't really good for my bladder. Uh, that's really an excuse because I can do it just fine. But it's working pretty well right now. So it's a twofer. I don't have to stand with my hands in warm running water and I get to watch him do the dishes. That's cool. Um, and what about food triggers or other environmental triggers? So that is a really common one that you mentioned. And I think your solution is a great one. (laughs) Um, I love it. So running water, um, 
you know, arriving home, which we already talked about, cold weather can be a trigger. So sometimes kind of walking from a warm house outside to the cold can trigger an urgency incontinence episode. Um, but then we do have a lot of dietary triggers that maybe we don't always think about. Caffeine is a pretty common one that I think most people are aware of and to some degree. So if you drink several cups of coffee or um, caffeinated beverages, you know, that makes you feel like you have to pee. And so in addition to caffeine, artificial sweeteners are a big one. Oh. Alcohol, nicotine, and spicy foods. Oh, well, why bother to live, Carolyn? Come on. (laughs) No coffee, no spicy foods. Well, what what I always tell patients is that, and there's actually a whole list of potential triggers, but... they affect everyone differently. So I'm not encouraging everyone to go, you know, you know, eliminate all of their caffeine or artificial sweeteners or spicy foods. However, if you have bothersome bladder symptoms, then it's worth paying attention to what happens after you consume these things. Because if you can identify one of these triggers, it can actually make a huge difference in your symptoms. There's one other thing I want to mention, and that is overall fluid intake. This is something that oh, yeah. I see a lot. So there is what what I kind of call the hydration myth, which is that everybody needs to drink eight, eight-ounce glasses of water per day. And that I'm not sure who started that myth, but there is zero science uh, or evidence to support that everyone needs 64 ounces of water per day. Everyone's fluid needs are different depending on your activity, your metabolism, the environment you live in, the foods that you eat. So, um, you know, I often see patients who honestly, they have bladder symptoms because they're just drinking too much fluid. Yeah. And everybody walks around with their water bottle, which is something never happened. When I mean, everybody's got their bottle with them. Mm-hmm. So I think this has spawned an industry of plastic water and plastic water bottles. And I don't think plastic is good for your bladder, but I don't have data for that. Anyway, well, let's talk a little bit about medication and because I know that there's certainly ads on TV for medication for an overactive bladder. Yes. So there are kind of two classes of medications. I'm not going to talk about um, specific names, but one is uh, the one class are called anticholinergics. And those both classes work by relaxing your bladder muscle. They just use different receptors. So the anticholinergics have been around for a really long time and they have good efficacy, but the the limiting factor can can be the side effects. So um, dry mouth and constipation can be associated with these medications. And those are the two worst side effects you can give somebody with urgency incontinence overactive bladder because then they drink more and if you're constipated your your urinary symptoms actually get worse so um, oftentimes these medications um, can be really helpful sometimes those side effects limit their uh, long-term utility the other class of medication uh, which is a newer class are beta-3 agonists and again this is a different receptor in your bladder relaxes the bladder muscle. And these don't tend to have those side effects as much. And so um, these medications actually can work quite well for overactive bladder symptoms. Yeah. 
Well, now for women, we aren't talking a lot about people who've had um, pelvic floor problems and the dropped bladder. But um, if you have a dropped bladder or or and you're thinking it's really troublesome every time you cough or sneeze or walk, or is there something you can do to push it back up there? Can you just say, um, I just want to push something back up there. Let me just, it's uncomfortable and I pee all the time. Absolutely. So, um, you know, like, like you stated, prolapse and, and incontinence or urinary symptoms often come together. And um, actually a dropped bladder, which is called a cystocele, can cause a lot of these urinary urgency symptoms because your bladder is not happy if it's not in the right location. So pushing it back up where it should be can often help treat those urinary urgency symptoms. And, and one way we can do that, uh, we have two ways. One way is by strengthening your pelvic floor muscles, and that would be through pelvic floor physical therapy. And then the other way is using a small device called a pessary, which is a little ring. It's medical grade silicone. Uh, it's placed in the vagina and just mechanically holds the bladder wall back up, the vaginal wall, and the bladder's right right above that. Um, and that can be really successful in treating some of those symptoms. Yeah, but but eventually some women have significant prolapse, or they just say, "I don't want to wear that thing. I just want my bladder tucked back where it's supposed to be." And that's something that you do every day. Your this is your specialty. You've done it thousands of times. And can you talk a bit about bladder surgery? Sure. So we have um, a lot of great surgical options for patients who kind of, you know, either uh, have tried the conservative management and it doesn't work or whose prolapse or leakage is so severe that, you know, surgery just is the right option for them. And it kind of depends on what your pelvic support is like, the extent of your prolapse. But we have um, prolapse procedures that will, will fix the dropped bladder and help restore normal anatomy. That's the goal of our reconstructive surgeries. And then we also have um, a, some surgical treatments for both stress and urgency incontinence. You know, I think that coming to a specialist can help in asking the right questions. I know that my mother of the in the Leaking Ladies Club um, had had, you know, four babies and had things tucked up. And then she got put on an antihypertensive in her 70s that made her cough and it wasn't in, you know, they, she was getting ready to have her second operation. I said, mom, did you talk to them about your chronic cough? And, and maybe you should take an antihypertensive. No one talked to her about that. So there are some medications or a chronic cough that's going to make all this much worse. Absolutely. So getting a good history from someone who knows, I think that's helpful. It's not always possible to change those medications. So yeah. I'm thinking of somebody with heart failure who's on a diuretic, yeah. you know, which just makes them produce so much urine. You know, like we, we probably can't um, change that uh, diuretic. But if there is a medication that's causing something like a chronic cough that we can change, sometimes that's all you need and you can yeah. avoid surgery. Right. Well, let's talk about some other sort of ancillary things. Is there a role for vaginal estrogen? We're talking about mostly older women. That was the group of women that you surveyed, and most of them are going to be postmenopausal. Does giving some estrogen for the vagina, does that help at all? Vaginal estrogen is really effective for treating uh, recurrent urinary tract infections, for um, 
restoring uh, kind of normal architecture to the vagina and managing symptoms of, of pain with intercourse that can be related to vulvovaginal atrophy or kind of thinning of the vaginal epithelium. Um, there is mixed data on the urgency overactive bladder symptoms, but it is certainly worth a try. Um, vaginal estrogen can help with a lot of pelvic floor symptoms. So now controversial stuff. What about this laser therapy? People have talked about rejuvenating the vagina and just and doing laser in the vagina. Is that helpful for bladder problems? Well, I first want to say that the laser is not FDA approved for use in the vagina. Uh. And so, um, you know, I, I do not offer that to my patients for that reason. Yeah. Uh, we do not have any compelling data to suggest that the laser is an effective treatment for uh, stress incontinence or overactive bladder. How about Botox? If I don't want wrinkle, I don't want my face to get wrinkled up <laughs> funny. And, you know, I'm a wrinkly, maybe Botox down there would help my bladder. Yes, Botox actually is very effective. So it is considered a third line treatment. So it's not something that we would offer, you know, for as a first line or something as a first step of treatment. But, um, you know, with Botox, what we do is inject the the Botox, which is the same Botox that's used to treat uh, crow's feet and for cosmetic facial um, procedures. We inject that into the bladder muscle. This is done in clinic and it works by paralyzing, partially paralyzing that bladder muscle. So we talked about before how the, the bladder muscle is just kind of overactive and squeezes too much with, with urinary urgency and urgency incontinence. And the Botox just relaxes the bladder just enough so that you don't have uh, those urgency symptoms. So it's actually very effective. Oh, well, I'm going to start a leaking ladies Botox party. You've heard of Botox party. Let's just do one for leaking ladies. Don't you think that would be fun? I'll invite you. You can be my star of the leaking ladies Botox party. I would, I would be honored to. <laughs> Thank you. As we move on to the spiritual domain, it's hard to think about the spiritual domain as having a big impact, but the concept of mindfulness of being able to be accepting of who you are and not spending a lot of negative rehearsals about this problem, which probably makes it worse. But coming to some uh, grips with who you are and what can be done and um, self-acceptance becomes important. Mindfulness is an actual treatment to try to stop your negative rehearsals. Um, however, one achieves that through one spiritual practice. Um, I don't know whether yoga works. I don't know whether prayer works. But I do know that negative conversations with yourself about this does not make it better and might make it worse. So we've kind of been through the seven domains, and I want to thank you, Carolyn, for coming and joining the Leaking Ladies Club, even though you only you don't do it now, but you were a temporary member. And before we sign off, I, I'm going to end with the seven domains of the aging bladder haiku. Uh-oh, gotta go. Cross my legs and count to ten. Smile, think grandbabies. 
Thanks, Carolyn, for joining us. And listen to our podcasts wherever you get podcasts. And think about all of our other wonderful shows on The Scope. Talk to you later. Bye.